This podcast contains coarse language, dark humor, descriptions of violence, and opinions that will probably piss you off. Listener discretion is advised. I can't tell you a lot about Arkansas off the top of my head. I'm assuming it's a lot of flat, open fields, farms, Christians, guns. Am I in the ballpark? seems like it's a typical Midwest state, but with the added bonus of having the only active diamond mine in the U.S. Didn't see that one coming, did ya? Oh, and they're also famous for being the state where Walmart started. I've never been to Arkansas. Used to know a guy from a small town there back when I was an internet-addicted teenager, but I've never even come close to setting foot in the natural state. Arkansas, as you can probably guess, is a death penalty state, and they're not afraid to use it. In fact, they're one of only a handful of states that used to execute people for rape. Just rape, not murder. Looking at it through my 2023 lens, that's kind of terrifying. The last execution for rape took place in 1956, when there wasn't any DNA technology. Kind of makes you wonder how many innocent people had to knock on death's door before they changed their laws. A total of 27 people have been executed in Arkansas since 1990. Only one man has been exonerated here. There's a sword and scale about the case, of course. It's a fucking nasty one. Plus 120 is the episode. I'm not gonna spoil any of it, but it gave me horrible anxiety for like a week. Lethal injection is the primary method of execution here. But anyone sentenced to death for a crime committed before July 4th, 1983 may also select electrocution. I'm not sure why anyone would willingly take that route, but with how badly lethal injections are botched these days, maybe being zapped is more pleasant. I don't know. We're gonna start this one off with a bang. A lot of bangs, actually. Some strangulation, too. And drowning. I'm honestly surprised I hadn't heard of this case before. Usually someone with this many victims would get more coverage. Ronald Gene Simmons <laughs> was born in Chicago on July 15, 1940, to parents Loretta and William Simmons. A little before his second birthday, his father died of a stroke. Loretta remarried within a year. Ronald's stepfather was a civil engineer for the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. The family was moved to Little Rock, Arkansas in 1946, which was the first of many moves. Simmons dropped out of school in 1957 to join the Navy. His first station was in Bremerton, Washington. It was here that he met the woman who would become his wife. The couple moved to New Mexico and had seven children over the next 18 years. In 1963, Ronald left the Navy and later joined the Air Force. During his insanely long military career, he managed to get a Bronze Star, a Republic of Vietnam Cross for his service as an airman, and the Air Force Ribbon for excellent marksmanship. He retired on November 30, 1971, after a staggering 22-year career in the military. So why is it that I'm talking about a New Mexico family in the Arkansas episode? Because the Department of Human Services and Cloudcroft was investigating him, and he got the fuck out of there before they could substantiate their claims. 
rather than stay in New Mexico and risk getting arrested, he moved his family to a 13-acre plot of land that would later be known as Mockingbird Hill. It's in Russellville, Arkansas. The house was made of two older model mobile homes that had been connected. This house didn't have a phone or indoor plumbing, but it was surrounded by a privacy fence that was up to 10 feet high in some places. You know, the important stuff. So what was Ronald running from, you ask? It couldn't be that bad, right? Well... Ronald was alleged to have fathered a child with his 17-year-old daughter, Sheila. There it is. There's the crazy. Ronald worked some low-paying jobs in Russellville to keep his family afloat. He left a job at Woodline Motor Freight after numerous instances of inappropriate sexual advances. After this, he worked at a Sinclair gas station for about a year and a half before he quit. There was definitely some kind of mental health thing going on here, but what I'm wondering is why he finally snapped. A few days before Christmas in 1987, Ronald decided to slaughter his family. He drove to Walmart, of course, and purchased a 22 caliber handgun. Sometimes I forget how easy it used to be to get a gun. Now you have to go all the way to the fucking pawn shop and wait that grueling 10 minutes for the background check to clear. What a pain in the ass. <laughs> After returning home, Ronald bludgeoned and shot his son Gene, as well as his wife Becky, who had long been suffering and trying to leave him. After this, he strangled his three-year-old granddaughter Barbara. Their bodies were put into a cesspit that he had previously forced his children to dig. I'm gonna assume that this was their bathroom, since they didn't have plumbing? Goddamn, that's nasty. I think Ronald is the only one who deserves to lay forever in a cesspit. After he moved the bodies, he went back inside to wait for his other children to arrive. Ronald then told them he had gifts for them, but wanted to give them out one at a time. This gift was to be strangled and then shoved headfirst into a rain barrel. What's a rain barrel? Well, this is backwoods Arkansas and we're dealing with a deranged, incestuous psychopath. I can only assume that this was how they got their drinking water. Loretta, the eldest daughter that was home at the time, was the first to receive this unwanted gift from her father. Three other children, Eddie, Marianne, and Becky, were also killed this way. Ronald waited around with the corpses of his family rotting away on the property for four days until the remaining family members showed up for their Christmas visit. The first to go this time were Ronald's son Billy and Billy's wife Renata. They were shot. Ronald then took their son Trey out by strangling him and drowning him. Soon after this, he shot his daughter Sheila and her husband Dennis McNulty. The daughter he had with Sheila was strangled to death, as well as his grandson Michael. He arranged the bodies of his family members together in the lounge. All of them were covered with coats, except for Sheila, who had been covered with the family's best tablecloth. That's fucking weird. His two grandsons were wrapped in plastic sheets and put into abandoned cars at the end of the road. After he was finished slaughtering his family, he went to a bar to grab a drink. He then returned to the house and spent the day drinking beer and watching TV while his family lay lifeless. 
This dude was so unhinged it didn't even bother him. On December 28th, Ronald drove into town and made his way to a law office where a young woman named Kathy Kendrick worked as a receptionist. Ronald had made advances toward Kathy, but she had rejected him. Because of this, when Ronald showed up on that fateful day, he shot and killed her. After this, he made his way to an oil company and shot a man by the name of J.D. Chaffin and the owner of the company. J.D. unfortunately did not survive, but the other man did. He then drove to a convenience store where he had previously worked and killed two more people. Continuing on his rampage, he drove to the Woodline Motor Company and wounded one more woman, which ended his killing spree. So, he was taken out by the cops, right? This perfectly sane man, after killing a total of 16 people and wounding several others, sat down in the office and made small talk with his secretary until the police arrived. He surrendered with no resistance. Simmons was found guilty of 16 counts of murder and sentenced to death. He refused to appeal his sentence, stating, To those who oppose the death penalty in my particular case, anything short of death would be cruel and unusual punishment. One moment of clarity for a completely unhinged individual. He was tried and convicted for the Russellville crimes. A jury found that death was the appropriate punishment. I mean, how could you not? He made a statement under oath that supported the jury's decision. I, Ronald Gene Simmons Sr., want it to be known that it is my wish and my desire that absolutely no action be taken to appeal or in any way change this sentence. It is further requested that this sentence be carried out expeditiously. Because of how off the rails this guy was, the trial court conducted a hearing to determine if Simmons was competent when he made that statement. They found that he was, and he was sent to death row. While there, he had to be kept away from other prisoners because they thought he was screwing up their chances of getting out of the death penalty by refusing to appeal his sentence. On May 31, 1990, the Arkansas governor signed Ronald's death warrant. That governor? Bill Clinton. I mentioned to my husband that I was surprised a Democrat would put anyone to death, and his response got me pretty good. What did you expect? He's a Clinton. You win this one, Daniel. Ronald Gene Simmons was executed by lethal injection on June 25, 1990. I can't find anything on his last meal, but his last words were, Justice delay finally be done is justifiable homicide. No family members claimed his body, if there even were any left to claim it. So he was buried in a pauper's grave at a cemetery in Varner, Arkansas. This next case brings us all the way down to Hollywood, Florida, because I guess we're gonna stick with the theme of traveling psychopaths that end up in Arkansas. On May 2nd, 1983, a college student by the name of Regina Harrison left her parents' house to go on a bike ride. She never came home. Her friends and family were the ones to discover her nude body in the woods in Westlake Park. She had been strangled to death and left out in the elements. Witnesses would come forward during the investigation and report that they had seen Regina riding her bike with a skinny, long-haired man who was on a black bike. There were no other leads in the case for months. A detective from Fort Lauderdale saw the case on TV and realized that the composite sketch of the suspect looked a lot like a serial rapist he had taken part in capturing. 
That man's name was Ronald Henry Stewart. One of the witnesses who had seen Regina the night she was murdered pointed to Stewart. He was charged with her murder. To avoid Florida's almost inevitable death sentence, Stewart pled no contest and was given 50 years in prison to run concurrently with his other sentences. A little over eight years later, a young woman who was visiting Florida from Pennsylvania was out drinking in a bar called the Elbow Room. She was seen socializing with a heavily tattooed man who later went back to her hotel room. Unfortunately, this is where her Florida vacation would come to an end. 32-year-old Lori Barrett's body was found on June 1, 1991 by a cleaning lady at the Days Inn she was staying at. She had been raped and strangled to death. A composite sketch was created of the man Lori was seen with. It included descriptions of his tattoos, barbed wire, and hard such with names. Unfortunately, this turned into a cold case, and Lori would have to wait for justice. Another four years would go by before our last victim was attacked. On June 6, 1995, a 17-year-old girl named Darla Phillips dropped her 11-year-old sister Lacey off at their mom's workplace in Bald Knob, Arkansas. Who names these places? Jesus Christ. Mary Phillips, who was 34 at the time, worked as a bookkeeper. Mary had planned to take Lacey to a dentist appointment at 3 p.m. that day. The duo was expected back home between 4.30 and 5, but they never showed up. A black-haired man had come into the office before they got the chance to leave. This man had a teardrop tattoo on his face and other tattoos on his arm. Apparently, he had come in earlier that day to borrow some books. When he came back, he complained that he had been given the wrong book. It was at this point that he told the mother and daughter that he was sorry, but that he was going to have to rob them. He ordered Mary to lay down on her stomach and had Lacey lay down on top of her. After getting the cash out of the register, he took them into a break room. The man then separated the little girl from her mother, taking her into a bathroom and tying her to a chair. When he returned, Lacey asked him not to hurt her mother. He replied, I'm not. I'm going to hurt you, before choking her until she passed out. He proceeded to hit her in the head with the barrel of a BB gun, which caused severe lacerations and several skull fractures. Some bone fragments penetrated Lacey's brain. Good lord, dude, she's a fucking kid. Unconsciousness would have sufficed if you couldn't help yourself. Lacey came to, she woke up and saw blood everywhere which made her vomit. She went back to sleep and awoke again to find the police taking pictures of her. They had assumed she was dead due to all the blood on and around her. Mary's body was found nude from the waist down. A cord from a coffee pot was wrapped around her neck and her hands were bound with wire behind her back. She put up a hell of a fight though. This was evident due to the bruises on her arms and back. Mary died of strangulation and blunt force injuries. Rectal swabs taken during the autopsy showed that she had been anally raped before she was killed. Lacey survived. She was able to give the police a description of the assailant and even testified in court when he was finally caught. The description she gave was enough to make an Arkansas state police officer go directly to a man's house and ask him to go to the White County Sheriff's Office. Once there, the man was read his Miranda rights and he signed a form to waive them. 
He admitted that the crimes had been committed as a way to get revenge against the police. He told them that his wife had been raped and the police did nothing about it. Where the fuck is the logic in that? Ronald Henry Stewart was not the man the Arkansas police arrested that night. He was in prison when Mary Phillips was murdered. The man they had caught and gotten the confession out of was Jack Harold Jones. This confession would help convict Jones and get him a death sentence. While waiting to be executed in Arkansas, his DNA was entered into CODIS, which is a nationwide DNA database. In 2003, his DNA hit on another case outside of Arkansas, the murder of Lori Barrett. They double-checked, as they should, and it was in fact a match. They had their man. Florida issued an extradition warrant for Jones, who was trying for the third time to appeal his death sentence. He was tried in Florida and found guilty, but they gave him life in prison and shipped him back to Arkansas, where he would await his execution. Jones would be waiting for many years to finally meet his maker, but they weren't easy years. He was given several stays of execution for health reasons like high blood pressure and diabetes. His leg actually ended up being amputated before he was executed. I'm struggling to understand why they won't execute a sick prisoner. They're gonna die either way, what difference does it make if they're ill when you put them down? According to Jack's sister, Lynn, Jack had been sexually and physically abused as a child, which led him down the path of addiction. Maybe that's why he did all of this? Who knows? He expressed remorse for what he had done and agreed with the sentence. He said that he was haunted by the ghosts of his victims and couldn't forgive himself for what he did. Jack Harold Jones was executed by lethal injection on April 24, 2017, along with another murderous rapist named Marcel Williams. This was the first double execution in the U.S. in 17 years. His last words were, Well, I just want to let the James family and Lacey know how sorry I am. I tried to be respectful from the time I took and become a better person. I hope I did better. I hope over time you could learn who I really am and I am not a monster. There was a reason why those things happened that day. I am so sorry, Lacey. Try to understand. I love you like my child. That is fucking creepy. Ew. His last meal consisted of fried chicken, potato logs with tartar sauce, beef jerky bites, three candy bars, a chocolate milkshake, and fruit punch. And that's where this story ends. Or is it? Back in 2006, Jack wrote his sister a letter and told her to open it a year after his execution date. In this letter, he confessed in detail to Regina Harrison's murder. He gave details that only the killer would know. Because of this, his body was exhumed in February of 2019 to be DNA tested. The DNA was a match. So Ronald Stewart, a disgusting man who had already been convicted of several rapes, spent 50 years in prison for a crime he didn't do. Stewart died of cancer in 2008, still serving that sentence. After all that time, Regina's family finally had a correct answer and some closure. I can't even imagine what it must feel like to know the truth after over three decades. Some of you listening may oppose the death penalty, and the next case I'm going to bring you has me leaning to that side as well. I will still sit proudly on this fence as I believe it is a necessary evil that needs to be reformed in order to bring true justice to our society, but this case pissed me off. 
Marjorie Mason, known as Greta to those close to her, moved to Arkansas in 1983. She had gotten her dream job as a nurse in the Air Force and was sent to Little Rock Air Force Base. Greta had grown up in Panama City, Florida. She was a natural leader and everyone in her life had great respect for her. Right after she graduated, she was chosen out of hundreds of applicants to become a second lieutenant. That's pretty fucking impressive. On February 26, 1983, Greta planned on going shopping for things to furnish her new apartment. Unfortunately for her, both stores she checked on Washington Street were closed. They were smaller mom-and-pop type stores, and sometimes they'd close early on Saturdays. As she made her way back to her car, two men were watching her. She was still in her nurse's uniform. The men came at her on both sides of her car and forced her into the middle at gunpoint. Two hours later, North Little Rock officers responded to what was left of the car chase involving Greta's vehicle. A hat that was believed to belong to one of the suspects was found in a neighboring driveway. Wayne Cheney, a North Little Rock officer, identified the hat as belonging to a man named Barry Lee Fairchild. This was a man who was known to police not only for criminal activities, but also for helping with drug busts. Two men were suspected of being involved in this car chase. The only description they had was that the men were black. They were not found that night. The following morning, a farmer reported that he had found some documents belonging to Greta tossed around one of his pastures. The responding trooper found a woman's body behind a farmhouse on the property. Pulaski County was the location they initially believed to be the crime scene, but the farmhouse was only 500 yards away from the Lone Oak County line. Because Pulaski County was a larger agency, they led the investigation. Greta's autopsy showed that she had been raped and shot twice in the head. Two bullets were found in her skull. These bullets would later disappear from evidence. After her death was ruled a homicide, the police went out searching for the two black men who were responsible. Five days after the murder, Barry Lee Fairchild tried to leave Arkansas on a bus headed for California. Deputies stopped the bus in Russellville, but he was able to walk away without being recognized. Pulaski County deputies rained down on Russellville trying to find him. Two days into their search, they got a call from a resident stating that he had an encounter with a black man matching the description of their suspect. This man had knocked on the resident's door asking if they'd call him a taxi because his car broke down. When the police arrived, they pushed their way into this resident's home and grabbed Barry by the shirt collar before dragging him out of the house and knocking him to the ground. As they were trying to put handcuffs on him, a police dog came onto the scene and bit Barry on the back of the head. This injury required nine stitches. After he received treatment, Barry gave two confessions. Neither of those lined up with the facts of the case. He named his alleged accomplice as someone who the police had mentioned to him, but this man was later proven to have been in Colorado at the time. In addition to this, Barry had type A blood which did not match the semen sample from Greta's assailant. It was found to have come from someone with type O blood. During the trial, Barry recanted his confessions. He claimed that he had been threatened and beaten by the interrogating officers. During his testimony, he said that he tried telling the police he had no idea about the crime. According to Barry, they responded to this by hitting him in the head with the barrel of a shotgun and repeatedly kicking him in the stomach. 
The officers apparently had him rehearse what to say for 20 minutes before the confession was recorded. There is a point on the tape where Barry is asked how many times Greta was raped. He pauses, looks behind the camera, and waits for a moment before raising two fingers. He then looks back at the camera and says two, two times. I'd like to say that I'm not sure why this man was convicted. I wish I was ignorant to the fuckery that this Arkansas Police Department participated in, but I'm not. Barry was convicted of the kidnapping, rape, and murder of Greta Mason and sentenced to death. Years after this, his lawyers found out that at least five other men had been brought in and tortured in an attempt to get a confession. All but one were beaten, several were bloodied, they were threatened with guns, often thrust into their faces, and they were kicked. All were pushed, shoved, and knocked around. And they were all told, We know you were involved. We know you raped and killed that nurse. We're going to do to you what you did to her if you don't tell us what happened. Some of these men testified at an evidentiary hearing, but were too afraid to speak publicly about what had happened. A man named Michael Johnson came forward in 1990, stating that he had heard the sheriffs in the next room torturing Barry to get him to confess. Two sheriff deputies from Pulaski County have admitted that using violence was a common interrogation tactic around the time of Barry's arrest. So I guess you're probably wondering why Barry was the one to give in to the pain and falsely confess to this heinous act. What little evidence there is points away from him completely. Well, Barry wasn't as sharp as the rest of the suspects police brought in. He was functionally illiterate and mentally handicapped. He was an easy target for these monsters. There have been other cases since this one where someone with mental deficiencies or struggles has confessed to a crime they're totally innocent of, such as the case of Ricky Newman, which I mentioned at the beginning of this episode. It is not uncommon for someone who isn't all there to be coerced into a confession. Unfortunately for Barry, this was back in a time when DNA technology wasn't around to prove that he had been bullied into confessing. The cops didn't care about getting Greta Mason any justice. They just wanted someone to blame for it. Barry said that the reason he confessed was that, to me, it was a life or death situation. That's the way I saw it. They probably would have found my body in some ditch the next morning. I truly believe that. For whatever reason, I'm struggling with this one. At a hearing in 1991, Barry's conviction and sentence were upheld. He was given a clemency hearing in 1995. His lawyer, Charles Baker, said the best example of why Barry shouldn't be executed was shown during this hearing. Despite being in a room full of people and TV cameras, Barry fell asleep, completely oblivious to what was going on around him. His attorney believed that he wasn't guilty to begin with, but emphasized, his words, not mine, so don't come after me, that Barry was retarded. What further proof is needed when my client, who's scheduled to be executed in days, can't stay awake? In the hours leading up to his scheduled death, guards took notes of everything that was going on. They reported that on August 29th, Barry mostly just smoked cigarettes and stared at the ceiling. For his last meal, he requested the same menu that the other inmates were being served. He was moved to an isolation cell near the death chamber. Charles Baker said, he knows why he's there. He knows they're getting ready to kill him. 
Barry Lee Fairchild was executed by lethal injection on August 31, 1995. Since his execution, there have been no attempts made to posthumously exonerate him. What a fucking disgrace. I can't find anything on his last words, but I can only imagine what thoughts he had during his final moments. Going to the grave by the state's hand for a crime you only confessed to because you were being hurt. Fuck. May your soul find some peace, Barry. You didn't deserve to go out this way. The longest-serving death row inmate in Arkansas at the time of writing is a man named Bruce Ward. He was sentenced to death in 1990 for the slaying of a gas station clerk in Little Rock. Ward was a homeless perfume salesman who had gone into the gas station and asked to use their bathroom. A cassette was played in court and Ward could be heard asking the clerk for help and saying that the key wouldn't fit. 18-year-old Rebecca Doss can be heard saying, I'm coming, hold on, before the tape goes eerily silent. Her body was discovered in the men's bathroom by a police officer who had stopped in, presumably for snacks or whatever. He noticed the store was empty and conducted a check of the building only to find the young woman's body. She had been sexually assaulted and strangled to death. Her outstretched hand was only inches away from the bathroom key. Bruce Ward was seen near the gas station after the crime scene was discovered and was questioned as he walked toward his motorcycle. Ward was arrested, and it was later found out that he had previously served time for strangling a woman to death in Pennsylvania. His first trial ended in a mistrial. After the third attempt at getting justice for Rebecca Doss, he was found guilty, and after only 50 minutes of deliberation, he was sentenced to death. His execution was scheduled for April 17, 2017, but he was one of four inmates who ended up receiving a stay. There were eight inmates scheduled to die in April of that year. Jack Jones and Marcel Williams were a part of that list. Ward is still sitting on death row. I wonder when he'll finally meet his maker. I think that's it for this one. A lot of fucked up shit happens in Arkansas, apparently. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe wherever you found me. Leave a rating and review if you'd like. I'm available on Rumble, Podbean, Podcast Addict, and Amazon Podcasts. You can also get me on Instagram at LastMealPod. Cursed is the man who dies, but the evil done by him survives. See you next time.